tonight we continue in our series on the fruit of the spirit. And we have the privilege of getting to hear from our very own Katie Luckishow. So please give her a East Colfax welcome. Hey guys. Woo! <laughs> Um, so I'm really excited to have the opportunity to share with you guys. Um, I get to talk to you about goodness, which is great or good, whatever you think. <laughs> um, preparing for this has been really fun. I've learned a lot and it's actually transformed the way that I understand kind of the fruit of spirit and the book of Galatians. Um, and when Joe invited me to speak, he asked if there was any of the fruit of the spirit that I was drawn to or something I'd like to speak on. And I realized that goodness was the most ambiguous to me, primarily because it feels like more of an action rather than something that is cultivated out of me. And goodness is a term that, as I'm sure we all know, is very culturally subjective. Um, so I'm just excited to share with you what I learned and I hope that you learned something too. So let's dive in. <laughs> Um, I think that we can start by just thinking about all the different ways that we use the word good. You ask someone about how their day was and they say, oh, good. How was dinner last night? Really good. What does it mean to be a good boy or a good girl? Does that definition change when you're talking about pets or little kids? <laughs> Some of you know that I'm taking a class about wine and we've learned how to rate the quality of wine based on a scale of poor to outstanding. And the rating of very good is only second best. So when we've watered down goodness to what is second best, what does that mean when we say that God is good? And as Christians, we like to say that all the time. There are songs, God is good. Um, that one song that's like, you are good. Ooh, you are good. Oh, oh. This is why Reuben sings and not me. Anyway, there's songs, mugs, posters, Christian self-help books on how to be good. Um, the concept of good is also connected to justice and rightness. Are you good because you follow laws or are you good because you break unjust laws? If you were in Aurora last night, there was a lot of fireworks going off and that's technically against the law. So where do we put that on the spectrum of good or bad? Um, I think the temptation is then to find some sort of moral superiority over each other. Now, this is nothing new when we look at Galatians and why Paul is writing this letter in the first place, we see the exact same confusion. The church is caught in a tension between the Jewish leaders and the Roman Empire. They've kind of come up with this um, peaceful agreement at the moment, the, the safety of the Jewish, Jewish groups in the Roman territory depends upon keeping up their appearances, being good citizens, and responsibly exercising their official state exemption. And this exemption was that they could pray for Caesar instead of praying to him. So the Jewish people are worried that if Rome realizes that the that there's this new Jewish movement that wants the same exemption, but do not follow the same normal ethnic practices, which is in this time, circumcision. And every great story in the Bible has to do with circumcision, so why not? <laughs> um, so Rome wants to know, 
who is part of this group and who's not. And circumcision is a really easy way to figure that out. It's very visible. People are running around naked in that time. Not a big deal. Um, but anyway, so Rome wants to, if everybody wants this exemption, they're going to start losing their power. And the Jewish people are afraid of what type of retaliation that will be. It's truly a scary political moment. There's life and death at stake. Um, so scholars date this letter right around the Jerusalem Council, which is mentioned in Acts. And that's where they think that they're having this discussion. The Jewish leaders are having this discussion about what to do with Christians. And the Christians are pulling in all these Gentiles. They're like, the Jewish people are talking about, there's now all these people that want this exemption. They don't look like us, so they have to get circumcised. This is a very clear and visible way to show which camp they're in. Are they part of the family or are they out of the family? This then snowballs to their understanding of their covenant and their security as a people of God. If they get circumcised, then they need to fall in line and become completely Jewish and follow all of the other Mosaic laws. So you've got this frightening political tension with Rome. The Jewish people do not want to upset what they have going on. It seems to be peaceful. Things are working. They have a law that clearly defines what's good and bad. And we also have to recognize the Romans this, are living in a post-Plato and Socrates world. Philosophy is part of the world that they're in. They're debating it. They're thinking about it. This is something that they're talking about and they value. So to me, this sounds a lot like what we're dealing with today. There's religious tension. There's political tension. People are constantly debating what is good and what is bad. So Paul, that's where Paul's coming from when he responds in this letter. He recognizes that this isn't just about circumcision. It's much more than that. It is the true corruption of the gospel, the good news. It's defining good and bad by placating the powers and defining it with hierarchy and a power structure. It's reverting back to establishing an ethnic group because the Jewish people were actually considered a, and that's what kept them, um, that was part of their agreement. The Romans saw them as a ethnic group that had these practices that clearly defined them in a role, which kind of kept the peace. So this whole concept it, that Paul is fighting against is this idea that, they're, that they are an ethnic group, that there's a dividing lines that decide who's part of the family and who's out of the family. That's opposite of what Jesus did. He came to set us free and unite the Jew and the Gentile. And he called us much farther than circumcision. He called us to crucifixion. And I think what Paul's doing here when he's talking about the fruit of the spirit is pointing us back to the garden of eating and inviting us to eat from the tree of life and not the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. So with all of this going on, I'm trying to figure out, well, what the heck is goodness? My question was, what does it mean to have a definition of goodness that transcends culture and politics? How is the, that type of goodness cultivated and not watered down into a checklist or a law? So what I'd like to do is start by doing a quick inventory. Words can come with a lot of baggage, be it good or bad, true or false. People assume a lot of definitions. I assume definitions. There's often a history associated with words based on our experiences and our worldview. So take a few minutes and reflect what is the meaning of goodness? What do you think it means to do good or to be good? 
what baggage are you carrying with the word good? Um, take 15 to 20 seconds and think about what your definition of goodness is. Okay, so I think this is a really good exercise because it helps us to begin defining what our presuppositions are. What baggage are we bringing into this vocabulary already? What are we starting with? What's our starting point? Um, last year, I read the book Learning to Speak God from Scratch by Jonathan Merritt. It's a book about reviving sacred words, words like holiness, grace, salvation, words like the ones in the fruit of the spirit. It was actually a really convicting book for me because there was a point in my life where I actually stopped saying that I was a Christian. I would rather say that I followed Jesus, but I wasn't, I didn't want to say that I was a Christian because of the connotation that it evoked. Um, scholar Tim Mackey says that this is called churchianity. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that Jesus was who he said he was, and I wanted to follow the way of Jesus, but because there was a religiosity and a hypocrisy that it was associated with it, I didn't want to immediately, when people met me, I didn't want them to be thinking that and have this immediate connection with, oh, this person is going to do the same exact thing that I'm going to do. They're just going to judge me for it. Um, so anyway, I stopped using the word Christian. And then after reading this book, it was an argument for why that's just, that's not the way forward. And he, Jonathan Merritt, invites us to redeem these words. Um, here's a quote from that book. A lot of the words we need the most have been watered down by overuse and cliche in politics and culture. And this includes words that are very meaningful to many Christians, love, peace, faith, goodness, and justice, to name a few. I don't think we can expect these words to necessarily convey what we mean when we say them. So we must surround them with an ecosystem of vocabulary in both words and practices to carry the richness of our meanings when the words themselves need reviving. So instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater like I did with the word Christian and never using these words like goodness, we should restore their brokenness and breathe life back into them. And that, my friends, is part of the definition of biblical goodness. So let's dive into the text. The word goodness that Paul use, uses in his letter is agathosune. It shows up only three other times in the New Testament and a dozen or so in the Greek translated Old Testament. And then it never shows up in secular Greek. So when you're doing a word study and you're new at this like me and you find the word only four times, you go crap. That's not a lot to define the word. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Um, so you have a lot of work ahead. But what's important is to not skip over the word and just say, oh, there's not enough. I mean, we'll figure it out eventually. Yeah, we have to remember how expensive and time-consuming it was to write these letters. It's not like today where we can just write a post-it note and throw out the paper and never think about it again. There was a scarcity involved with paper and the time it took and the ability to write. 
So these words were chosen carefully and are there for a purpose. So the other thing is that this signals to me that there, this word is unique to followers of Jesus because it's not used in secular language. We can't define it elsewhere. It is unique to those filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a term that defines secular good deeds. There is something set apart about this word. So the root word, we try to define, if we're going to define it, we go to the work, the root word, which is agathos, and that shows up over a hundred times, which is so broad <laughs> that we can get an inkling of what it means, but it's still really challenging to define. Um, we can see that we are to cultivate it, to cleave to it, to do good, to follow after good, to overcome evil with good, to imitate it, to work it, to be zealous for it. But still, what does this word mean? <laughs> so we're going to take admit it and go all the way back to the very beginning of the book, Genesis, where God uses the word good for the first time. And we're going to let him define it for us. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there is light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness and called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there is evening, and there is morning, the first day. We're going to skip down a little bit. God said, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So the word that God uses here, or that is used here, God uses it too, but <laughs> the Hebrew is tov, which means to flourish at its purpose, to flourish in fullness, excellence, completeness, with an abundance and beauty. Philip Kennison says that the notion of good usually points to excellence and cannot be separated from some idea of that object's purpose. So goodness is defined by the purpose for which it was created, its intent. When God said things were good, it was purposed, it was given life, and it was allowed to flourish, and it flourished in its fullness and excellence. So as humans are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei, goodness then is living in intimate communion and connection to who God is and partnering with him to rule and subdue the earth. Goodness isn't a passive state. It's an invitation to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So it seems like a lot, and there's a lot of books out there that want to tell us what our purpose is and tell us how to find our calling and three easy steps. And then we have all these self-help things that tell us how bad or good we're doing at this calling. Um, but really, there's no secret here. We're told in Genesis 1.28, our calling, our our purpose is to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is about partnering with God to subdue the chaos and bring forth more life. Now, this is also the point in the story where it takes a turn and where Adam and Eve become part of our everyday lives and we join in the choice that they make every day. As Mrs. Potts says, this is a tale as old as time. We are constantly given the choice to choose to eat from the tree of life or choosing what's good in our own eyes by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this is what poses a challenge to our 
purpose. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is about the process of discernment. When Eve takes of the fruit, she says that it was desirable. And the word there actually means to covet. So she coveted the fruit and its possibility of power. Now, the story could have stopped right there. She didn't have to go any further. She could have waited to meet with God in the cool of the day and talk to him about it. Like, hey, why can't I eat from this? You said we can't do it, but it looks so good. Why can't you tell us? God isn't withholding information. He's simply asking that we go to him first. This is actually something that was um, transformed a lot in me as I was studying this. I really thought that the tree was there I saw it as a choice and a really important choice, part of our free will. But I, I was like, why doesn't God want me to know what's good and bad? That seems to be pretty important if we're to rule the earth. Like, that seems like, critic, like a critical piece of information. Why doesn't he want me to know? But he's not withholding the information. He's just asking us to go with him, to go to him first. It's like, a, you don't tell a child when they're two or Joe's, sorry, you're, everybody is over here. <laughs> but you don't give a kid a knife until they have the dexterity and the ability to use it appropriately and they don't harm themselves. That's essentially what the tree is. God wants us to go to him so that he can show us how to use this information, how to rule the world that promotes the most human flourishing. There's a moral infancy implied in this passage where Adam and Eve are in the story. They, they're not ready to know all the things yet. They're still learning. They're still in this process of discernment. King Solomon has a very similar moment when he's made king. Though he uses The words that he uses to ask God for wisdom replicate this moment in the garden. He is made king and he is overwhelmed by the responsibility and the power to rule. He then immediately identifies himself to the moral infancy of a child and says, I have no idea how to do this. So he asks for wisdom and asks using the same words in Genesis for Tov. Instead of giving into power and hierarchy, he seeks God's wisdom to rule. So he, God has invited us and partnered to partner with him in ruling the earth. He didn't just say, Good luck, guys. Have fun. Peace out. That's it. You got to figure it out. That's that's what that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and bad is. Is taking it for ourselves. And God was there, communing with communing with Adam and Eve in the garden, teaching them wisdom. And and now through Jesus, He's inviting us to restore this calling, to go back to this process of discernment, discernment, and to step into human flourishing, to bring wholeness to the world by restoring it to our original intent, to be more fully human, not to be less, not to be harmful. In the encounter in the garden, the serpent twisted just enough of what God said to make them think that they were choosing what was good in their own eyes instead of simply waiting. Another fruit of the Spirit, patience. They just needed a little bit of patience. Wait for God and he'll tell you. <laughs> the two trees represent a choice in how we discern good and evil. Will we be tempted by our culture or politics, even if it looks desirable? What are we? What is the serpent that is kind of twisting and making things look just that little more tasty? What's causing us to rush in our decisions? 
why don't we wait? Just slow down, take a breath, wait for God in the cool of the day. The choice to go faster, to pursue what looks desirable, to covet after that knowledge makes us less human and it promotes corruption and it hinders human flourishing. Or will we consume from the tree of life and commune with God in the cool of the day in the garden? Will we pursue wisdom and learn to discern the way that produces more life, more flourishing? So what does that really mean? How do we actually do that? I think it's by becoming true students and disciples of Jesus, by letting the text say what it wants to say, letting it actually speak and not allowing our ideas and our presuppositions to say what we think it should say. Will we follow our teacher, Jesus, even when he washes the feet of our betrayers? When he washes the feet of our enemies, when he flips, ta flips tables in the temple, will we, will we go join him there? When he slows down and goes out of his way to heal the sick, will we go too? Will we take the time to get to know Jesus and why he did those things, the intent that he had, what was going on? Why was he doing these things? It's not just a list of things to check off. If we choose to daily commune with him and seek out who he is and what he's doing in this text, I think that is our way forward. There's, um, I think also there's a tension, a temptation to mourn the loss of our original state, to mourn the loss of the Garden of Eden. How do we get back there? How do we do that? But I think what Paul is saying in Galatians and talking about the fruit of the Spirit in that entire book is about freedom. It's about letting go of all of the things that are keeping us in bondage, the law that's holding us back, and, and truly stepping into a freedom and a restoration of our original state. He is inviting us to go back to our intent, to go back to the garden, that that state, that when we die, we crucify the flesh, we come back to our fullness, and we can go back and commune with God in the garden. And that can happen every single day. So next, I'd like to ask when the last time is you saw someone flourishing, because it's truly intoxicating. When you see someone that just exudes generosity, the generosity of their time, their gifts, their resources, someone that is wise and merciful. To me, I think the person that has exemplified that is Gregory Boyle of Homeboy Industries. Now, I've never met him, but whenever I read his stories, um, he just reminds me to recognize the sacred beings that are in front of us, that everyone is in, made in the image of God. Everyone is worthy that we should be washing everyone's feet and that there is an awareness and an awe that comes with that. And he is dedicated. If you don't know, he's dedicated his life to restoring the lives of gang members in LA. And he does that by just simply seeing their worthiness and the beauty of their life and bringing awareness to it there. He gives them jobs. He helps them break, go through rehab and, they have um, job training, a ton of different resources to get them back on their feet. But ultimately in that, it's just seeing their humanity and acknowledging them as the image of God. Um, I think that there is a really beautiful art form that exemplifies this, and it's called kintsugi, which means the golden joinery. 
And instead of repairing broken pottery by trying to hide all of the cracks, practitioners of Kintsugi use a bright gold lacquer that highlights those cracks, which they believe improves upon the original. But you can only appreciate the new vase when you let go of the old one. It truly is an example of beauty rising out of brokenness, beauty from ashes, dying to the old self and being rescued from this present evil age. Just like what Paul says in Galatians, crucifying the flesh to live in the freedom of Christ and to flourish, to walk in restorative goodness by communing with God in the garden. There is a present awareness to cultivating goodness. And we have to practice being awake to the presence of the Holy Spirit and choosing to participate with that. I think something that's beautiful about that Kintsugi art is um, actress Selma Hayek has this quote that I think just says it perfectly. People often say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I say the most liberating thing about beauty is realizing that you are the beholder. This empowers us to find beauty in places where others have not dared to look. And I think that's just a perfect description of what this restorative goodness is and how we can be transformed to find beauty in places where others haven't found it yet. Um, so next, I'm going to share a story that I share with a little bit of trepidation because I know it's not going to fit everyone's theological perspective. But I share it because um, God has shown me a lot of just beauty and goodness in it. Um, last year, you may remember, there is a girl who came right around, came to Colorado right around the 20th anniversary of Columbine, Soul Pies. She was a girl from Florida and was suspected to be coming to Colorado to reenact the uh, Columbine shooting. And her presence in Colorado caused a statewide manhunt. Businesses and schools were on lockdown. There was, um, people were demanding her death and it was bringing out the worst in some people. There was a lot of fear with that. A lot of parents were truly scared that um, an event like Columbine was gonna happen again. And to be fair, there were multiple shootings and that fear wasn't misplaced, but I, I do believe it was misplaced on her. Um, but for whatever reason, this story just really struck a chord with Chris and I. I don't know why. Um, we don't know her. We haven't really any other connection to this story, but something about it felt off. And um, as I was just kind of reading the updates, um, I saw that when they, there was just a, something told me that she just, she was no longer alive. Like this manhunt was happening and she was gone. Um, and sure enough, the autopsy showed by the time the manhunt had started, she had ended her life. Um, and so there were, I just found myself weeping and asking God where he was in the midst of this girl's life and why she felt so helpless. and and alone. And, um, and I learned that she, when she got here, she went, she landed, got an Uber and she purchased a weapon and then asked the Uber driver to then take her to see snow. 
So he drove her up to Mount Evans, dropped her off, and she proceeded to walk through the snow in a, I think it was a tank top and some cargo pants and not snow boots. So she had to have been cold, got up there. And then um, after a few practice shots, ended up taking her life. Um, uh, She posted her journal online and we went through it and saw just a person who was lost and broken and just didn't feel that she belonged. And that was repeated over and over and over again. And um, this next picture actually comes from her journal. And she was from Florida. There's no mountains there. And she drew this picture of mountains and this note that just said, I'm not supposed to be here. And um, in reading that, it, I mean, it wrecked me. <laughs> I, I sat and just, like I said, I was praying and talking to God about the whole event. And why am I feeling this for this girl that I've never met? And I think that God invited me into his brokenness about the whole thing. And the comfort that I experienced in praying through this was that God is so compassionate and so loving that he was there the entire time in her loneliness. And I, I went on this adventure, um, adventure I say lightly, but in imaginative prayer where um, I sat with my eyes closed and walked with God and soul, Pais, through the trail up into the mountains and the spot where she took her life. And as she looked around, and it was a very peaceful, beautiful spot, she takes her life and then wakes up. And Jesus is there holding her head and says, hey, it looks like you hurt your head. And then he heals it and asks her to come with him. And they walk down the trail to a cabin nearby, drink hot chocolate, and they talk about what happened. And he just loves her. And I don't know what happens when we die, but I truly believe that soul was in his arms and that he was there restoring the brokenness that she felt. And I just think that that's the God that we serve. I think that is the goodness and the beauty that he brings out of the most broken and tragic places. And that that's our calling is to partner with him and to see those people before they make that choice to end their life or whatever it might be that we go and walk with people on their journey in goodness, enjoy in the bad times and the good times and, and all the times in between, but that we're awake to it. So um, I asked Ruben to play a song. And I'm not going to give you any strict instructions about this, but I'm going to invite you into imaginative prayer. And imaginative prayer is a practice from Ignatian spirituality. And generally, you read a part of scripture, and then you imagine yourself in that. And so what I invite you to do, I'm not going to give you a strict set of rules, but I am going to invite you to go back to the garden. Go back to the point where you can, you're making the choice. Are you going to take the knowledge of good and evil for yourself? Or are you going to take it from the tree of life, wait for God and walk with him in the cool of the day and redeem 
and bring yourself back into wholeness. Carry no shame with you when you go to the garden. Let all of that go. See your Kintsugi self, all of the broken pieces filled with gold and beauty. And may you be vulnerable and just walk with God in the cool of the day. Picture yourself in the most beautiful place, wherever you would think the garden is. Close your eyes and just listen to the lyrics of the song and just enjoy this time with Jesus. Take me back to the garden Lead me back to the moment I heard your voice Bring me back to communion Lead me back to the moment I saw your face And it was all so simple It was easy to love Space between us, it was easy to trust. You are closer, closer than my skin. to living I feel my heart beating again It feels so good to know you are my friend This is the garden Here in the place I find you this is communion Here in the place I'm fully known And it was all so simple You're so easy to love No space between us You're so easy you are closer, closer than my skin.
little space between us You're so easy to trust You are closer, closer than my skin this is a Celtic benediction because the Galatians actually came out of a Celtic movement and are known as the Gauls and so I felt like it was appropriate to end with a Celtic uh, benediction. In the beginning, oh God, when the firm earth emerged from the waters of life, you saw that it was good. The fertile ground was moist, the seed was strong, and the earth's profusion of color and scent was born. Awaken my senses to this day, to the goodness that still stems from Eden. Awaken my senses to the goodness that can still spring forth in me and in all that has life. Thanks, friends. <laughs>